Hello, this is Nathan Ray, and this is my friend, Philip Naderak. Philip Naderak, we know each other from Bible College, right? Yeah, then that one college called Vanguard, Pentecostal one, College. Pentecostal College called Vanguard. And we've managed to stay in touch over the years, managed to keep up on each other's lives. Yeah, it's been quite the journey. It's like we're in our own little fellowship of the ring right now. I just watched through the old original trilogy, so we're a bunch of hobbits, flaming Pentecostal hobbits. Yeah, you're with Mary and Pippin, and I'm with Frodo and Sam. Yeah, hands down, yep, let's do it. I think like the last time we met in person was two years ago. You know, that makes sense. Yeah, ever since COVID happened, it's like no one's talking with each other really in person, but we're still keeping connected. It's still really good. It's really cool, like the little seed that was planted in Vanguard. It's like it's really birthed into this nice, fruitful friendship that we have. So it's really cool. Speaking of our lives and Pentecostal Christianity and all of the nice stuff that comes with that, how has God been working in your own life as of late? Mm. Especially, um, especially since we last spoke with each other. Yeah, uh, I think maybe three big things. One of them is that I've decided to go for my master's. It's a two-year program with Taylor Seminary, specifically the Kairos Project. And it's super highly flexible and people can look it up for themselves. But yeah, I'm going for that. I'm like, I want to pursue this teaching thing. I think there's a calling on my life to do that. I think I have the mind for it. And I think people would be like, your stronger gift is teaching rather than pastoring. So I'm like, that's where I'll go. And then I need a job, need money, so... It's going to open the doors. And then the next one is going on the Pentecostal route. I, I actually would say I believe that tongues is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because I, I was challenged to just think through it again. And then I'm like, okay, I'll just read through Acts. And let's see when that baptism thing happens. What do the people show up? What's, what's the evidence? And they are speaking in tongues. It's just there. When the scripture gets explicit, it's there. And the third is that I'm more humble these days. I'm less about my own private interpretation. And I'm more like, let's sit back, listen to what other Christians have said in the past. That, that led me to read more of church history. So I'm reading through Ignatius of Antioch. And it's really comforting to hear like an early, 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 super early Christian basically saying the same things we would say like 2000 years later. What's so notable about Ignatius of Antioch? Yeah, Ignatius, um, if my understanding is right, he's a direct disciple of the Apostle John. And so his words come with a lot of weight. And what he says is basically affirming Christian doctrine that we have today. Like the Trinity is there. The real existence of Christ is there. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension the unity of the church, the old covenant coming to the new covenant, like eternal life and eternal damnation, pretty much it's all there from a direct disciple. So it's like having a living commentary right alongside the scriptures. And how about you? What's God been doing? What's God been doing in my own life? A couple of things. First of all, I just got another job for the summer that will hopefully boost my income a little bit. And I'll be working that job alongside the job that I already have at Canada Post. And the, the primary goal for the summer is to try and make as much money as possible so that I can prepare for the future, prepare for paying off tuition for schooling, prepare for costs associated with moving, prepare for hopefully paying enough money for a wedding. and. I think that thus far, everything is lining up to make those things a reality. I just registered for online university a couple of weeks ago, and I have enough money saved up where I can pay for my first year of tuition without taking on student loans and without taking on scholarships. Wow. Good job. Shoot. Well done. Yes. I'm counting on things working out in the future that I'll be able to do the same thing for three years in a row 
And with each successive year, I will still be able to have more money saved up and hopefully I'll be made permanent at Canada Post. I'll be able to make more money there. And then from there, we'll see where God takes me next. I'm also investing in cryptocurrency on the advice of my good friend, uh, Gordon Clark, who you might remember from Vanguard. I'm blanking. Oh, man. He's a Vanguard alumni. Okay. He's pretty huge into cryptocurrency. I had him on the podcast a couple of episodes ago. And for the longest time, he has been pushing not just me, but all of his friends to get involved in cryptocurrency. And at first, I was extremely hesitant because I I just didn't want to have to lose money (laughs) on what is essentially online gambling. Or it can feel like online gambling, but eventually I came to the realization that our economy is primed for crashing and our banking systems are primed to go under eventually. And if that happens, then I am going to need to store my money in a place where it's still going to have value. And I could store it in the stock market or I could store it in cryptocurrency. I think that cryptocurrency is going to be more viable for the future. And so I'm choosing to invest my money in there. And that wouldn't have been possible without Gordon in my life, without him badgering as many people as possible to hop on this bandwagon. Thankfully, it's not screwing up my plans for paying off my tuition. I'm only investing like maybe $100, $200 a month in this, but I'm hoping long-term this will reap great benefits. Amen. Yeah. And the third thing that I can think of, of how God is working my life, there's been a running plot line between you and I. This might be a fairly good reason for why we're still friends for this woman that I love, who you delivered a prophecy involving her and me. And thus far, I haven't been able to find any resolution on that front. But there are two things coming up in the future that I can see potentially working out in favor of the story. The first thing is that I recently became friends with a woman named Tiara, who goes to my church. She goes to the same family group as me. She's a very lively, spirited young woman very anti-lockdown, anti-mask, very vocal about her views on social media. And usually whenever I get involved with people, especially when I become friends with them on social media, I try to look at their past history, trying to get an understanding of who they are as a person. And as I was scrolling through some posts, I noticed that one of her posts was liked by someone who had previously blocked me, which means that there was a personal connection between us. And doing a bit more research, I found out that the person who liked that post, who also had blocked me, also happened to be the roommate of the woman that I love. And this isn't just a nice one-off acquaintance. There are other signs indicating that um, it's not 100% confirmed, but I would be very surprised if Tiara hasn't met the woman I love. And so there's a part of me that's wondering, will Tierra be an important part of this story? Will she be instrumental in this reconciliation process? Of course, she doesn't know about this connection. And I've decided to keep it a secret for now. Unless she chooses to listen to this podcast and then we're screwed. <laughs> yeah. But it's something interesting that's not something I would have expected. And the second thing that's coming up that could play out in favor of the story is that there's a friend of mine who's getting married, or he's already married, but uh, he he wasn't able to have the reception because of COVID. And he's Mm -hmm. hosting the reception at the end of July. And I know for a fact that the woman I love is going to be attending that wedding reception. I have no plans to interact with her in person because I don't think that's going to serve my best interests. However, I do know that plenty of other mutual friends and plenty of other people are going to be at that wedding. 
And I know that it's going to give me a prime opportunity to showcase the best of myself. It's very true. Yes. And so those are two Chekhov's guns that have yet to be fired. And I'm eagerly anticipating and wanting to know how exactly they're going to play out. Yeah, it's super exciting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like it hasn't happened yet. God isn't working in my life yet, but I see how he can work. And that's what I find compelling. Yeah, definitely. Like, I really hope that this saga ends well for you. <laughs> like, I'm definitely rooting for you. And yeah, if your friend does listen to the podcast, that's going to be an interesting curveball. <laughs> Hello, calling it out. Hello, I was there. <laughs> Oh, man. And hello to everybody else who's going to watch that, too. Yep. <laughs> or listen, sorry. But, man, that's so good to hear all those things. Like, all in all, it sounds like your life is going well. There's some stability there. You're looking forward to the future. It's such a good place to be. Absolutely. Going back to your own life and how you were talking about your thoughts on theology and how you were trying to be more humble, let's talk about the reason why we're on this episode in the first place because i'm supposed to be on hiatus for crying out loud <laughs> yeah i'm so sorry it was kind of last minute <laughs> yeah so the story goes is if you go back to the past i said some things that i wish i perhaps didn't say out loud it was about modern apostles existing today possibly uh, that could happen um, that the canon of scripture is open and that god could give a revelation and i talked about my whole little dealing with fornication being a sin or not. And so I was thinking, oh, man, if people listen to that, uh, I feel like I'm going to have to deal with a lot of controversy. And it's just like, let's nip it in the butt right now and address it. So it's just sealed. And then it's like, hey, I said this, had that talk, and it, it's dealt with. That's why. So are there apostles still alive, still present still waiting to contribute to the open canon of scripture. Yep. Um, I would say does not look like it. And God seems to have ceased that seems to have left the canon closed. Cause in, in the history of the church, there hasn't been anyone who is trustworthy and reliable, who has laid down new doctrine that the church has accepted. There's just no one outside of the scripture that we have. So I'm like, okay, based on that alone, and the, the consensus of the church, basically, it points me as an individual Christian who is modern, so separated from the apostles, the original apostles. It basically says to me, don't expect it. But if God in his mercy or grace is sovereign, he's decided to give new apostles or a new addition to the scriptures, I'd be open to that. But I, I guess my attitude is now I'm not waiting for it. Because I would say the scripture that we have is sufficient. It doesn't need to be added to. It's all that you need is there. The apostles have written it down. You have the prophets. You have the law. And there's a lot of great work that needs to be done with the canon we already have. <laughs> Going into this, like a lot of it came from my own private interpretation. And I think this might be a weakness, like a, an unintended weakness of the Protestant Reformation. Because we're like, it's just us and the Bible. It's our personal relationship with Jesus. But as for the Christians who were there 100 years before or 200 or 300 and, and down the road, we're so disconnected from them. We wouldn't be able to say what the church was like in the year 600 AD or 700 or 300. It's cloudy and hard for us to do that. So I'm like, okay, well, the disciples had their disciples who had their disciples and they carried with them a tradition, an interpretation of scripture, not saying all of it is right. but I guess it would be fair to say, if you came up with an interpretation of scripture that no one else ever thought about for the first 2000 years of the church, you better have really good evidence. Otherwise, the evidence is against you and you shouldn't be so quick. And I think this is where it comes to. I was way too quick, way too quick to be like, no, no, no. I read the Bible. I can understand it. But there's such a filter that's like... If only it was just God, Bible, and then the truth, but it's God, Bible, then us interpreting it. And then we say what we think the truth is. So in summary, 
I guess you could say when the Protestants remove the Pope, it kind of opens the doors for pastors and individual Christians to be little popes to themselves, just without all the religious garb and vestments and stuff and titles. So right. I'm like, I'm taking a step back. If the church doesn't accept apostles and hasn't really, hasn't been open to it and says the canon's closed, and especially on fornication being a sin or not, I'm like, yeah, consensus opinion is no, <laughs> basically no to all of those things. So I'm like, okay, I'll humbly submit to that. Use me as an example to anyone who listens. Do not be so quick to go on your private interpretation. That doesn't mean sacrifice what you see, like your ability to read the Bible, but it's more like humbly accept you still have a filter. And it's best to listen to the Christians who came before just to help sharpen you. So if I might play devil's advocate for a moment, how are we not to say that people like the prophet Muhammad, Martin Luther, or Joseph Smith, that those weren't apostles, especially with Martin Luther, given how, regardless of whether or not you like the guy, you like his teachings, his teachings were the foundation for the split between Catholicism and Protestantism. Right. The primary thing would be the scriptures. For Joseph Smith, he ended up saying, like, as God once was, so like, it's basically men can become gods and God was once a man. And we're like, well, Isaiah 40, I think it's Isaiah 43, 10. God says before me, there was no God formed. Neither will there be after me. There's no other God. Like I'm the first and the last. So Joseph Smith, false prophet. He contradicts the word. When it comes to the Quran, I think the Quran just explicitly teaches that Allah made it look like Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't. And so I'm like, well, our whole faith is, is like grounded in the death of the Messiah. So to reject that is to reject atonement and to reject the salvation that we're supposed to preach. So I'm like, if, if the same Holy Spirit can't say that Jesus died and he didn't, so Muhammad would be a false prophet. He denies the gospel. But for Luther, I would say he did preach the true gospel and he's not perfect and I'd say he is in line with a lot of what church history has said. Um, but was, would he be an apostle? No. I don't think Luther has written anything that the Lord himself has put upon the churches to accept this real canon, that he just never had that influence like Paul or Peter did. So that's how I would take it. The word and church tradition. So like I knocked down Joseph Smith and Muhammad with the scriptures but there's also church tradition. So going back to Ignatius, I guess, early church fathers who dealt with Gnosticism, I think the way they handled that was saying, okay, you guys have your secret tradition that no one knows about but you, but we have apostolic tradition that we literally know about, and you are the newer thing on the block. We were here before you, and we actually knew the disciples. So our tradition contradicts yours. We clearly know where we got it from. Therefore, you're the heretics. So that's another way to protect the truth. But the word is higher than tradition. But the tradition helps enforce the truth. So there are these different denominations, the three main denominations, Orthodox Christianity, Roman mm-hmm. Catholicism, and Protestantism. Who's correct? <laughs> yeah. Or is everyone wrong? <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, Pope Philip, what do you declare his doctrine right now? I would say everyone has some of the truth, but no one has all of it. That would be my thing. Because I'd say there's heretics in all three, and there's genuine Christians in all three. Because I'd, I'd imagine when people say, well, I'm a Protestant, not everyone knows what that means. Or And same with Orthodox, and same with Catholic. It's like, you don't really know. It, it comes down to the person and Do they truly believe in the right gospel? And I would say, as a Protestant, I'd say the gospel is you are saved by God looking at your faith that is pointed to Christ, and he declares you righteous because of that faith, and it's not your works. But if you are truly believing that, you will live that out. For the Orthodox, I don't think they contradict that, but I'm I'm brand new to that. I'm actually looking into Eastern Orthodoxy more now. I listened to a debate between an Orthodox priest and a a lay Catholic theologian, I think. 
and it's interesting how they're arguing in history. But yeah, I'm looking into it. I don't think the Orthodox preach something explicitly anti-gospel where we would cut them out. But for Catholicism, oh, I think in the Council of Trent and maybe Vatican I, if I remember right, they just outright say, if you disagree with us in the way we understand justification, and if you disagree with Peter being the Pope and the universal head of the church, you are anathema. Like under church discipline, you are not right with God. You need to get right with him or else. So I'm like, I think at those points, they've added to the gospel. Because when I read what the Council of Trent condemns, if I remember right, they just outright condemn someone for saying that if I believe that I'm justified by faith alone, purely by trusting in Christ, I'm anathema. That's like, okay, I think you just condemned the gospel. At the same time, I wonder if the Council of Trent was, and the Protestants might have been talking past each other. And this is what makes it all muddy, because Hank Hanegraaff recently converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. He's the Bible answer man. And then John MacArthur calls, I think, called him out in a sermon on Sunday and was like quoting from an Eastern Orthodox theologian talking about how we're justified by works or something like that. And then we know where MacArthur's coming from. It's like Romans 4. It's the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So that's MacArthur's viewpoint. But Hank was just like, emphasis is on James chapter two. If faith without works is dead, a man is not justified by faith alone, but by works, justified by works and not by faith alone. But the context is Abraham proving that he really did believe by wanting to sacrifice his son. So I'm like, I feel like they talked, like Hank understood where MacArthur was coming from, but perhaps MacArthur didn't, like, it's like two sides of the same coin. On one hand, you are justified by faith alone in Paul's context in Romans 4, but James chapter 2 is not emphasizing that particular justification. It's more like if you are justified, you will live it out. And on a lower sense, you are simply declared righteous by your works. Like, I guess simply put, in Matthew 25, Jesus has the sheep and the goats, and he's like, well, to the sheep you fed, you, you gave me water. When I was naked, you clothed me, all that stuff. And they'll be like, when did we do that? Well, you did it as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. They're declared righteous, but that's not the final grounds of why they're saved. Their ultimate grounds is faith in Christ alone through a sacrifice. So that muddies the waters. <laughs> it really does. So if I might try and phrase for myself what yes. you were trying to say, it's sort of like faith and works operates on a bit of a cycle where you are driven through your faith in Christ to do the good works that you do. And the good works that you do, in turn, reinforce your faith in Christ. And the moment you are removing one from the equation, where, say, for example, you are doing good works, but you are doing it without the faith that you have in Christ to drive you, then ultimately, those works mean nothing. But ultimately, if you are a person of faith, and even if your works don't amount to much in the end, or they get screwed up, or even if you're a hermit out in the desert, and you're not really doing anything for humanity, aside from maybe farming a plot of land and keeping the soil good for a tiny speck of the earth. Aside from that, you're, you're really not contributing anything to humanity. You'll still be justified through your faith in God because you two still have a relationship with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a thing. If all your trust is in your works, you will never be good enough. And if all your trust is in faith, but you have no works, you're going to be done. That won't save you either. There is that cycle. And then I, I guess the faith should be what drives the works and the works reinforce the faith. And then the foundation of that is justified by faith alone. It is bringing forth the fruit of the works, but it's always on that legal ground of faith alone covered in the blood. But then like that hermit or like the Corinthians who were like, there's this one man sleeping with his father's wife. It's like, you'd look at that church and say, it's messed up, but they're still saints messed up but still saints and there is room for church discipline so 
being justified by faith alone and yet dealing with someone who is a saint and yet living in sin, it's that tension of mercy and judgment and discipline that we have to live with. And the Protestants, I think, were right. Luther was right to emphasize faith alone. And that by the sounds of it, it sounds like the Catholic Church was really emphasizing the living out your faith part. But it went so far that they forgot the grounds of their justification at the core. And then so Luther is just, and I, I guess we're descendants of his theology, since he rejected so much of what was wrong, it may have gone so far to the point where we just forgot our history. We're so disconnected now. It's like the baby did go with the bathwater on some level. Yeah. I want to touch upon a point that you made uh, regarding for the Catholic Church, they took the approach that if you spoke out against the Pope or you spoke out against the established order of the hierarchy, then you were automatically blaspheming, you were automatically in the wrong. I have had a lot of issues with leadership in the past. There have been times where I've tried to respect the order and the hierarchy of leadership, and it hasn't always worked out in my favor. Through my experiences, I've come to the conclusion that you need to be able to criticize your leaders, and they need to be willing to listen to you. And they can't hide behind the excuse of, well, I'm the boss. If you don't like it, then you can go, and you can just not bother me. The people who embody that attitude, I think. I don't want to be under their leadership. But at the same time, do you think there's a place to criticize God and criticize the people that he's called to be leaders? Mm. Um, I think we can complain and, and grumble in some sense. Like I think of the Psalms, when we have our problems with God himself, we just have to know we're always going to be wrong. <laughs> we're always going to end up being like, you, you were right, God. It, it hurt and it sucked, but you were right. But when it comes to his leaders, no, I think there is room for humble, humble rebuke, and there ought to be. I think in First Timothy 5, Paul basically says, don't accept any charge or accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So he's already making room. Leaders can be confronted. And I think he's, he even goes, might be in that same passage where he's like, and rebuke them in the presence of all, that the rest of the people would fear sinning. So... There is definite place. And Paul rebuked Peter to his face in Galatians chapter two in public. It was this, the identity of the gospel is at stake. And Peter and Paul is just like, hey, you're a Jew living like a Gentile. And yet you are wanting the Gentiles to live like Jews. And yet the gospel is supposed to free you from that legalism and obedience to an old obsolete covenant now. So it's hard because the Bible does command us to be humble and to submit to our leaders and yet they ought to be confronted. And you're absolutely right. The leaders ought to receive correction where they need it. In my own life, I guess, because when I graduated from Vanguard, I was like, ah, burn everything down. I don't like the church. I'm not going to fit anywhere, blah, 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 blah. And yet I've been in this healing process, this humbling process where I'm like, okay, I ended up volunteering, had a Pentecostal church, denominational one, PAOC, and just stayed there. No hope to be a pastor, not even doing just humbly being part of the church even though I don't like it. And the doors have pretty much begun to open. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's a healing thing. It's a slow thing. And I, I guess to anyone who has been hurt by leadership and they're wanting things to change, take comfort in how David dealt with Saul. In some way, he was called as king and Saul was to be deposed. And yet David did not try to take it into his own hands and kill Saul. He weighed, He really waited for God to exalt him. And God was the one basically bringing Saul down. So it's like stepping back and recognizing Saul's in authority. That pastor I don't like is an authority appointed by God, but clearly there's a problem. God knows there's a problem. It will be confronted, but I'm going to be humble and wait for God's timing. That doesn't mean I can't speak out, but it, it does mean I'm going to wait for him ultimately. You mentioned that you didn't like being part of a Pentecostal church, and I believe that this resulted in you trying to start your own church, which I attended a service of, and I know you did. I know that you weren't trying to start a cult. Yeah. It just looked like that. But 
what would you say that you learned from that process? Why do you think you had something against Pentecostalism in spite of going to a Pentecostal Bible college? How would you say that you've become more reconciled to that aspect of the faith in attending a Pentecostal church? And if you had the opportunity to do so again, would you start your own church? Hmm. I guess we could broaden it. I think I had a problem with all denominational churches. Like it wasn't just the PAOC. It was all kinds. I, I was just like, you're too exclusive. How can you want to uplift people when your statements of faith are literally designed to just have people who think like you? It doesn't make sense. So I tried to do this house church thing. And boy, that was a something. My noble pursuit of truth and wanting to do it my own way was a mask or it blinded me from my own immaturity because I didn't really understand what it meant to love the body of Christ. Because it's easy to split off, but Jesus commands you to wash each other's feet. And that may mean really sticking it out with Christians you don't like and dealing with a structure and policies and statements of faith that you think are quenching the spirit and what ought to be done. It's like, if you have a problem, in a sense, I'd be talking to myself. If I was to say, what would I say to him? My past Philip, I'd be like, honestly, grow up and realize you do not love the body as you think you do. You are not that mature. You are not that patient. You actually do have a problem with authority. You're not waiting for God to appoint you and uplift you. You really are dividing. And so when I came to, to this Pentecostal church, it was the humble, painful submission of this is the body of Christ. I'm going to love her where she's at. And we'll just let God be the one to do it now. And then he did. So that, that's what I would say. Does that answer your question? I feel like there was more. I also asked you if you were to do the house church again, how would you go about doing it? Okay. I feel if I was to do a house church again, it would be probably under the covering of the PAOC because I actually would want to be credentialed. Ironically, now I see the value in being part of a denomination. That doesn't mean I don't agree with everything, but that's, I guess, a tension we always have to live with. But it is nice to be part of a fellowship to hold you accountable and have that teamwork so you're not just autonomous churches just doing your own thing so if i was to do a church plant it would be under that covering have that support and really have bring that sense of history and tradition and continuity it's like i'm not doing my own thing it's you clearly see where i'm coming from in the history that goes far back and there would be a lot less rage <laughs> like inner inner rage a lot less inner complaining and Probably it'd go back to Vanguard before I even graduated. Like my attitude would have been like, let's make connections and really try to work with other churches rather than be in my own ivory tower theologian mindset. And then not really talk to anybody, not really think of the future and a job, but just hope it happens. I was so immature in planning my future and I wasn't a team player and part of the church. Really, I didn't, ex I didn't really, it didn't really sink in as to the commitment and patience and pain of being part of the church. It didn't sink in. How do you think that you still maintained that immaturity in spite of going through a four-year degree? I presume that you went through a practicum as well. Yeah, I think I was probably so focused on the assignments and so, ton I had such heavy tunnel vision and I wasn't really engaged. I didn't have other men to really disciple me. In fact, I wouldn't say I really was discipled by anybody, like a constant long-term mentor that it wasn't really there, pretty much is never there. And so there wasn't really anybody to call me out, or if they did, I didn't listen. That's probably how, because it's so easy to, especially for me, it's like, oh man, people might look at me and be like, wow, Philip's so theological and spiritual, like, whoa, we're not on his level. It's like, you're just seeing one aspect of where it's good, but there's a whole lot that you're not seeing. And perhaps I was blinded by my own theological brilliance. It's like when it came to simple patience and loving the body of Christ, it's like, yeah, your theology doesn't really amount to much if you can't fulfill those basic things of patience. So that's how it's so easy to hide behind the arguments and the, and the sermons and the apologetics. But yeah, that, I'd say that's how. Do you think 
you not having proper mentorship, do you think that was a, a problem with the structure of Vanguard or do you think that was a problem with yourself where you just refused to seek counsel from anyone? It probably was more myself. Yeah, definitely. And in that time, I guess what led to me going on the house church thing was I left my first church, pretty much my first, because I was like, oh, I believe the gifts of the spirit. And they're like, oh, they're threatening to excommunicate, basically. I read your bread policies, fine, I'm out. And then I was trying to be part of another church. It's like, oh, so we're, uh, we're Calvinists, we agree on the gifts, but oh, Philip, you believe in that women can be pastors. Sorry, you can't be here either. I'm like, all right. And then the next church, oh, I do believe women can be pastors, but oh, you're a Calvinist. No, you can't have that. So I basically was just like, well, this is how the church is as a whole. And so you're not worth listening to. I know what you're going to say to me. That's probably how it went. But yeah, I basically turned emo, an emo theologian. But thankfully, I did have two good connections that led me to the church where I am and actually am pastoring in. So ironically, how it all turns out. Do you still believe that women can be pastors? I do. And do you still stand by every word that you wrote in the book where you defended your view that women can be pastors? Yeah, pretty much. At the same time, I think it is the majority opinion of the church through history that women can't be pastors. So I'm like, I'm not swayed totally by what the church in the past has said, but now that I want to be more humble, listen to what the church has said in the past, I'm like, okay, if I believe that women can be pastors, I better be able to prove it, especially since the church for the majority of its history did not believe that. It's just like head coverings. I know a brother who basically was just like for the first 1900 years of the church, churches were all always wearing head coverings. And that's what he said. It's like only very recently we stopped. So that is a good point. It's not proving the point, but it's something to consider. What do you think of a movement within progressive Christianity to promote such things as women being pastors of churches. And I think they might say more liberating, more inclusive aspects of theology. I'd say it's all good as long as you're in line with scripture, no matter what the movement is. As long as you're able to back it up, then you're, you're good, you're solid. And yet there's also a healthy room to challenge our biases, our cultural biases that don't come from the scriptures is just from us. Like if you're from a church, like you could say the liberation of hoodies and sweatpants in churches. If the church culture has just always had suits and ties, would I support a movement for hoodies and sweatpants and more come as you are? Sure. As long as it's done in the right way. I wouldn't say anything wrong with wanting women to be liberated and have a voice like they should. And like Paul does want women to prophesy and speak in tongues and do miracles. Like it's there. Like Jesus even says, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater. It's the condition is the one who believes. And it does say he, but I don't think in the context and disciples making disciples that it's gender specific to just men. So I would be in support of that. I wouldn't be in support of people. This is where I'm more complementarian. And this is what it means. If they would say wives are equal to their husbands in everything, that the husband is not the head of the marriage at the core. I disagree. Ephesians 5 says, wives be subject to your husbands in all things as unto the Lord. And, and husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. So I believe there's teamwork. There's a lot of collaboration. The husband ought to be willing to die and do everything he can for his wife and to really take her words as heavy and weighty. But at the end of the day, she submits to him. However that exactly plays out, there is still that male headship, at least in marriage, that I see. But in terms of the church, women being pastors, preaching, prophesying, teaching, sure, I'm for that. Do you think there's a proper way to make that kind of argument? Like, from what I've read of your book, you are making your case from scripture. You are trying to take into context what was happening in Paul's life and what Paul was observing in the various cultures he was ministering to as he was writing his letters and as he was saying, I'm not going to allow women to teach. Would you say that someone who is operating from the argument, well, we can't accept what Paul is saying, his words are invalid, they were written for a different culture, for a different time, how would you respond to that? Hmm. 
I would accept it as long as they're able to prove it was contextually specific, like for that time. Because that's ultimately what I do say when it comes to his words in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14 to 15-ish, where he does say, I want a woman to learn in quietness, all submission. They'll permit a woman to teach, have no authority over a man. It was Adam who was made first, then Eve. And it wasn't Adam who was deceived. It was the woman who fell into transgression. She was deceived. I'd be like, let's take that, put it back into its context in Genesis. And I'm like, oh, we see in Genesis that Eve... I think misunderstood God's command. She said, we can't even touch the tree. God didn't say you can't touch the forbidden tree. So Eve didn't really know what she was saying. So I'm like, I think Paul is not saying Adam being made first means that all men take leadership in the church or it's gender specific. I think he's just saying, guys, literally like you women in Ephesus, you are like Eve. You don't really know what you're saying. For you, be silent because you're just like her. And I'm like, that seems to be a fair interpretation. And I'd say that can be proven contextually. But if someone was to be like, if Paul says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And someone says, well, I don't like that because that's Paul and that's contextually, culturally specific. But we're in modern 2021 now. We don't obey that. If that's all they say, I'd be like, no, no, (laughs) that is clearly cross-cultural. It's timeless. You can't just reject him because you don't like him or because he's a man or it goes against your preconceived sexuality and you've taken that as gospel already. It's like you need to let the word define its own terms and decide what's cross-cultural. And it's pretty clear what is and what isn't. And how would you respond to someone who takes the opposite approach, who uses scripture to justify things like female pastors, homosexuality? We'll stick with those two. But the most obvious example that comes to mind is the work of Matthew Vines. Mm. I don't know if you've read his work. If I'm totally honest, I have yet to read his work also. And so I'm a little hesitant to critique him. I have read a very thorough critique of his work online. I believe from Joe Dallas. And it made notes that for Matthew Vines, he is very respectful of scripture. He's not out to denigrate it. He loves God. He loves Jesus. And so he's making his arguments on that basis. But at the same time, he's also advocating for something that we would traditionally not be in favor of. And so how would you respond to someone who approaches their message by not just skirting around the issue of what's in scripture, but by addressing it head on and by using the message within to not only avoid condemnation for their own message, but also to promote it. Yeah, I haven't read Matthew Vine's work either. I think I I listened to a debate between him, or at least a talk between him and Michael Brown. And I might have heard James White listening to a video or a speech of Matthew Vine's and like pausing and then talking about it and then playing it and then pausing and then talking about it and playing it. I think that's about as far as it goes. I'd say I like that Matthew does want to interpret the scripture with that that sense of reverence and at least being like, it's the word of God. And it's like, okay, you believe it's the word of God and you believe the word of God is consistent with itself. That's good. I disagree with your conclusion, but I just, I like the attitude. But at the end of the day, the word of God is clear that Matthew Vines has a bias I would say it's too clear that like Leviticus 18 and 20, when God is talking to the children of Israel about the Canaanites and what they're doing, like do not sleep with a man as with a woman, that's an abomination. And do not do anything that these nations have done because this is why I'm I'm destroying them. That's cross covenant. Like that's the morality of the old covenant and the new covenant. It's the same in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Paul just clearly talks about it. Romans 1 addresses it. So I'd be like, there's too much continuity. It's too black and white. And I'd say for the majority of church tradition, it's only until recently have people begun to say, oh, no, you can be Christian and live out these lifestyles. Like that wasn't really a debate back then. So on basis of the word and history, Matthew Vines has no case. I like the attitude, but it's just tragic that someone could have that reverence of scripture on some level and yet be so wrong. 
but I, I'd rather take a Matthew Vines over someone who's like, no, screw the Bible. I don't want to talk about it at all. Or like, I can make up my own religion and my God tells me that it's okay. It's like, no, Matthew Vines is better than that. So I'd respectfully disagree and implore him really submit to what the scripture says and look how Christians have always interpreted it. And I'd, I'd say that Matthew Vines was perhaps like me when I was thinking that fornication was not a sin. Not that I wanted to do that, not that I was living by that identity, but I think there's that mutual arrogance to think that we can totally come up with new interpretations and go against the vast majority of church history and the word itself. Yeah, but I think in your case, and maybe even in the case of Matthew Vines himself, for you with fornication, it's such a common message to hear in evangelical churches, you shouldn't have sex before marriage. And there's not a whole lot of reason as to why that is the case. There is a value for marriage, but if you're getting engaged to get married, why not just have sex before marriage anyways? Why not just have sex for the fun of it and uh, wear protection? And I think in your case, I remember you posting your thoughts online and it created a whole lot of controversy among your friends. But I also think that you were asking a necessary question because at one point, like, you can't just say this is wrong and we need to abide by this. You need to have reasons attached to it. And if you're claiming that it's wrong because of scripture, because scripture is saying so, then you are going to need to reference scripture and you can talk about the sanctity of marriage, but there are ways of getting around that. There are ways of having sex with another person that, you know, you can't necessarily make the argument that it's going to lead to terrible consequences because if you're having sex with your girlfriend and you two already love each other, and you get her pregnant out of wedlock, and that forces you to get married to each other, your reaction might just be, well, I still love her. I was going to get married to her anyways. Why not just embrace this? And I I think that the reasoning that you eventually came up with, it was not something that other people would look at and think to themselves, yes, this is an obvious indictment against fornication. You were talking about, remind me again with the passage. Oh, um, yeah, you, you basically, you pretty much nailed it on the head. I exposed such, a, such an inability what, from what I saw for Christians. They were, they were so unprepared. And for the longest time, I think, or whatever, I was just like, you know what? I never really thought of why it's a sin. We've always just embraced it, but where's the actual scripture addressing it? Eventually, it just entered my mind where I was just like, I think it's Ezekiel 32, 36 or, six, or 1634, something like that, where God's saying about Israel or Judah, you're like an adulteress. You spread your legs everywhere or whatever. And yet you are not like an adulteress. You're not like a prostitute because you don't even want to get paid. And so I'm like, ah, if not even wanting to get paid is clearly painted as bad. And this is just a woman who wants to sleep around. And, and God's using that physical example to show spiritual sin. So I'm like, both need to be bad. Both examples must be bad. So therefore, fornication is a sin. That's ultimately, I'm like, oh, if, if only someone pointed that scripture to me, because they would point, and this is what made it worse for me. Like, here's the thing. You can believe something to be true, but if you have bad arguments to support it, you'll make the person you're trying to convince become even more committed to thinking they're right because your arguments truly don't add up. Because I had, I think I had people just simply quote, or just one person quoted, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality or the English translation fornication. And I'm like, you're assuming it. The word is pornea. You're assuming fornication is in that word. Show me how it's in that word. Like give me actual scripture and like more explicit than that. Yeah. So, and I think for myself, before I listened to your own argument, the closest thing that I could think of to a good argument was in the Old Testament Torah, where it talks about what to do with a couple when you discover that they're having sex outside of marriage. And there are a couple of outcomes that can happen. 
Either they both get stoned if it's proven that they're both adulterous. The man gets stoned if it's proven that he was the one who was raping the woman and she had no opportunity to call out for help. But if both of them are two mutually consenting adults, there's no hidden immoral agenda. It just decided that now was a really good time to screw each other. Then they have to get married and they have to live with that decision. And so in my mind, it showed me that God valued the idea that if you're going to have sex with someone, it has to be an exclusive relationship, but I still couldn't answer why that was the case. And I think looking back on that passage and your highlighting of the passage in Ezekiel, if we're going to treat sex with reverence, then if you make it exclusive, if you make it between two people only and in the context of a covenant where they're not going to back out of the arrangement, then that highlights the specialness of sex and the sacredness of sex. And if you're saying that you can have sex with whoever you want, or you can have sex with a person without regard for boundaries, even if those boundaries are lowered by you two consenting. If you have sex with your girlfriend right now, even if you're engaged, even if you two love each other, if sometime afterwards you decide, eh, it's not going to be worth it to be in this relationship and you decide to break it off, that makes the moment of you joining together and becoming one less special than if you were doing it with the promise of a covenant. Yeah. Yeah, legit. And I think on the just a natural level, like sex leads to commitment. It it just follows. It's meant to produce life. Your children need to be raised and you need to be there. It's just stability and commitment and long-term stuff is there. And the emotional union, that spiritual union, that physical union, it really does matter. And you carry that with you. Like people, I guess, could sleep with so many other people and then maybe they're numb to it or something. But I think for me, there's a real union. Like I, like you could say, I've never actually had sex with anybody, but I I remember having, I'll just be honest. I had a wet dream of, of someone and nothing happened in the physical, but it was so real that it still makes me uncomfortable to this day. And so I'm like, if I was to actually sleep with someone outside of, of marriage, it's like, yeah, in the raw moment, you might like it, but it's like, no, there is a sense of taintedness. It's like, man, I wish I never experienced that. I think there's that unspoken reality, perhaps. I haven't really looked into it, but it'd be interesting to survey a lot of people who have fornicated. Do you regret it? Especially if you're in a marriage now, do you regret that? Or like talking to Christians, especially those who want to deal with marriage counseling and really dealing with psychological stuff and emotional, whatever have you. It's like, do you wish you never had sex with someone else? They'd probably say yes. And not just because the Bible says it, but just the reality of having done it. Sex is built for commitment. Not everyone's going to say yes, though. Which is true. That's true. It's not like a complete slam dunk, but I, I'd say there's enough discomfort that I'd say it's something worth putting on the table. But I'd ultimately go down to scripture and say it is a sin. Yeah, and people can be seared. They're like, no, it's no problem. Just like they could say, there's no problem worshiping another God. No, no problem saying no God exists. It's like, there is, and you're blind to it. A couple more questions. What are your thoughts on critical race theory? Oh, man. Can you define that for me? You've never heard of critical race theory. I have an idea, but I'd want to deal with a clear definition. Okay, what is the idea that you have? Is that, and this is going to show how living, been living under a rock, is that basically systematic racism? It can be part of it, yeah. Okay. And like a deconstructing of society and wanting to remake it so there's like complete equality, especially so like specific racism? The, the definition of critical race theory, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, is that it's an intellectual movement and loosely organized framework of legal analysis based on the premise that race is not a natural, biologically grounded feature of physically distinct subgroups of human beings, but a socially constructed, 
culturally invented category that is used to oppress and exploit people of color? Uh, well, I guess based on that, I'd say we're all made in the image of God. We're all created equal. That doesn't mean we're Garrett, we should have equal outcomes. Like I'm obligated to make a million dollars just like you. And there are clear differences. It, I guess it goes into like sexuality and just the way you look. It, it's biological. It's clear you are different at the yeah. core, still human. And it does suck that exploitation and oppression does happen based on your skin color. But a complete deconstruction. And I guess if, it, it's, if it's really saying there is no racial stuff at all. There's no difference. There's nothing. Like if you were to, if you're a cop and you want to describe someone stealing, it's like, it really does matter what the skin tone is. It really does matter what their eye color is. And so like that. it's not meant to be racist. It's just, that's who they are. But if critical race theory would be like, no, that's oppression. You can't describe a person like that. It's like, well, that's ridiculous. You're someone who is half white, half Filipino. Yes. Have you ever felt like you were oppressed specifically mm -hmm. because half of you is biologically part of a minority? And have you uh, specifically felt like you were given access to undeserved privilege because half of you is part of a majority race like the Caucasians. Hmm. I think the clearest moment, maybe it's just what I perceive, but I was working at Costco one time and I was a freezer stalker and this older white guy looked at me and I think I saw like I don't know, disgust in his eyes. And then I think I'm, I heard him mutter, they're taking all our jobs. And so at that moment, I'm like, wow, you really did just judge me based on how I looked. I was born here. My dad's born here. My mom immigrated to here. And to be judged, like, it's like, can your kids not apply? Did you not apply? Did you not go to school? It's like, it's kind of fair game. So yeah, it did suck. And that'd be the clearest moment. There will be moments. And it, it is kind of nice being in both worlds because then there's like, oh, I'm inside with the Filipinos and I'm inside with the white people. But then you kind of realize every race can be a racist. And there is that sense, like not to diss Filipinos. And I guess it could go either way, but it's like, it's harder to talk to people who don't speak your language and don't look like you. And then you can clearly feel it when they don't want to speak your language. They don't want to make you feel included and they'll judge you based on how you are. Like I, I kind of step in both worlds. Like I can see the Filipinos through or whatever, through white eyes. And I can step back and do that. I can see white culture through Filipino eyes. Like, ah, so you can see how the flesh is there. Like all this stuff about white guilt. It's like, no, just remember Asians can be racist against white people and black people can be racist against white people too. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Do you feel like you've been majorly oppressed, that you've been Major. denied opportunities no. because you're half Filipino and that the only reason you've been able to get ahead in life is because you're half white? Have you ever felt that way before? And would you, would you ever have that as the basis for teaching theology, teaching things like reconciliation and forgiveness in a church? I think I would say I never felt that the way I looked was a source of oppression. Nah, it pretty much always felt like, no, nope, it's fair game. I guess I'm just blessed that I never had to deal with that kind of racist stuff and felt that there was a prejudice there. In a sense, I, I'd probably use the mixture of races to, sh to help bridge a gap and, and to heal that stuff. Because I'm like, if my parents can work it, and if I can step in both worlds, it's like, it can help bridge. It's like, I'm literally the product of two cultures coming together. So it can work. And that I'd probably use that as to help preach that reconciliation. And so yeah. you wouldn't use critical race theory as the yeah. framework for being able to preach that. You would just go off your own experience of saying, I'm the product of two worlds. I've been able to determine my identity from those two worlds, but also in living my life as a Christian. Yeah. Finding my identity in Christ. I think so. Yeah. And I was just blessed when I was growing up. I didn't really see myself as white or Filipino. I was just surrounded by white people and there's other colored non-white people. It's just, all right, we're, this is just life. That's how it is. It's only until you get older then you realize, oh, people have preferences. Uh, okay, I see yep, different languages. I see what I actually look like. Yeah, it makes sense. But never oppression. And that's a... 
yeah, I never felt like I had to say I'm a victim or, and if I did, I think it was probably childish. And if you did, it wasn't going to be on the basis of your race. It was going to be on the basis of your religious beliefs because you didn't fit in with any of the other churches. <laughs> or like maybe dating stuff. It'd be like, instead of being like, oh, I just look a certain way. It's like, no, you're jobless, in debt, you can't drive, and you live with your mom and basically in her basement. That's why. <laughs> it's not because you're not white. <laughs> One more thing I want to address. We were talking earlier. You mentioned that you had become convinced that speaking in tongues was a necessary sign for someone to showcase that they were being indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, as a Pentecostal myself, I'm going to agree with you. Yep. But what does this say about all of the other self-professing Christians who are not charismatic, who do not speak in tongues, who are not only actively not desiring to speak in tongues, but who are out and proud cessationists who deny such things are happening. How do you respond to those kinds of people? Yeah, it's a whole thing. I'd, I'd probably say there's some in the camp who probably look at the Pentecostal charismatic part of the church and they're like, you guys are crazy. I've seen a lot of abuse, prophetic words that aren't legit and people faking tongues. So I'm like, I get that. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then there are legit Christians who don't speak in tongues, who are cessationists, who have been such a blessing. So like MacArthur, he's helped so many people. The solid doctrine that comes from him is amazing. Like you would not be wise to throw out his entire ministry because he doesn't speak in tongues. But I would say no matter how fruitful they look, there's still more that could be had. Because when I read Acts, people spoke in tongues. It's just clear. You don't see this sense of, a person accepted Christ and all of a sudden they're filled with the spirit, but no one could tell. You don't see that when people are filled with the spirit, when acts really wants to make clear, it was open public or it, like you couldn't control it. It sounds. So I, I'd say for them, I encourage them seek that labor for it. And, and Paul wants you eagerly desire the, the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy like you are commanded to do it. It doesn't matter what the abuses that you've seen. People abuse the Bible all the time, but you, you don't throw out the Bible because they abuse it. So seek the true thing, seek the right thing. So yeah, I, I wouldn't want to treat them as second class. I'd want to make them feel like, no, you're a brother, you're a sister, we can do ministry together. We disagree here, but let's not die on this hill and make this a huge dividing wall. But in the context of love and wanting to have a mature brotherly family dialogue, I would want to challenge and press in, in a wise way and be like, there is more, you know. Just look at Acts. There is more. And it's, it's consistent with what Paul's saying. Is there anything else that you want to address that we haven't already delved into? Because according to you, you want to make this episode the final word on anything that you have to say about theology so that people aren't confused by anything else that you've said in the past. Anything else you want to address? I think that's it. I would probably just say, at the end of the day, Philip, <laughs> as a brother in Christ, he is learning. He's more humble now. He's much slower to say what he believes with so much confidence, and I'm open to being wrong. And I guess just, I'd say, use me as an example. I would be someone who people would say is smart, but if you isolate yourself, and you're not connected to a church, and you're not patient with the church, and you're not willing to listen to what the church has said way long before you were born, you're going to end up like me and start saying real heresy. And you're going to think you're smart. And when people correct you, whether rightly or, or in, a, in a wrong way, you're going to get puffed up. So be humble. And with all the stuff that I said, I hope it's good. And it's like an ongoing dialogue, but God will protect you. Just be in a place of, of tons of humility. And I've, I've basically learned that. So just want to patch that up. Not a crazy heretic. I'm not about to come out with, with my own special Bible, 2.0, New Testament 2.0, an extra 300 pages from prophet Michael Jackson. It's like, no, it's not going to happen. But if God wants to give more of the word, it's like, all right, but I'm not waiting for it. The scripture you have is sufficient. You don't need to look for other apostles. If God's going to make them appear, he will, but you don't need that.
yeah, but at the same time, it's still a good idea to look back on church history and look back on the continuity of how we understand things, because if we don't have that, then we don't really understand why we believe the things that we believe, or even if what we believe had any validity back then. Yeah, we need the sort of the living memory of the church, the living commentary of the church. And the church has basically said, canons closed and God clearly hasn't spoken. There's no apostles that are rising. It's like, okay, I'm fine with that. And God have your way. Wherever the church is wrong, change it. But I'm going to be slow (laughs) to let things into the canon and appoint someone as apostle. It's like mm, tons of scrutiny to any new doctrine, any new supposed apostle. Uh, But anyways, I think that's everything that we want to say to each other. It's been really nice talking with you on this podcast episode. I don't know if I should thank you or curse you for bringing me out of retirement, especially when I wasn't asking for this, (laughs) but it was still good to talk to you. Oh, it definitely was. And uh, thank you so much for coming out of your little retirement for this. It's like, oh man, I think this episode needed to be done. And it, it was good and it was deep but I think very good. Yep. Anyways, see you guys. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray, with special guest Philip Natarak. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website, bwntscast.com. .wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach out to us and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening.